You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care clinician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And I'm here today with Julia Shackley-Sammons, who is the hospital epidemiologist and medical director of the Department of Infection Prevention and Control at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Thanks for joining me today, Dr. Sammons. Thanks for having me, good morning. And Dr. Sammons had the misfortune probably of being my senior (laughs) resident, and so I'm gonna continue asking her lots of questions, just like I did in residency. Not a misfortune, no. But today about Zika. And so I'm going to start off with a little bit of background. Although Zika was discovered in 1947, it's only recently started to make headlines as it spread to the Western Hemisphere in 2015. Much of the concern over this mosquito-borne infection is related to the concern for birth defects, including microcephaly, after pregnant women are infected. It can also cause Guillain-Barre syndrome in adults, but otherwise clinically looks like many other common viral infections. Cases of Zika have now been found in the United States, making this a hot topic among our patients and necessitating that clinicians remain vigilant in recognizing potential cases and understand how to counsel patients about transmission risks and outcomes. So Julia, today, currently, we know that Zika can be spread through uh, a bite from a mosquito, from a mother to her fetus, through sexual intercourse, and theoretically a blood transfusion. Is there any concern that there would be other ways it could spread? For example, could it be spread by breastfeeding? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good question. So in terms of breastfeeding, to date there are no reports of Zika transmission uh, through breastfeeding. Although it is possible to detect Zika RNA in breast milk, mm-hmm. there's never been cultural virus identified from breast milk and no evidence of transmission by that route. Um, so current recommendations are for mothers to continue to breastfeed because of the many benefits of breast feeding, even in Zika endemic areas. Um, The only other mode of transmission worth noting is the potential for laboratory exposure transmission. Mm. So people who are working with Zika virus in the lab. Um, So that has been reported uh, to date on a limited basis, including one report of laboratory acquired Zika in the United States. Mm, That's interesting, especially for our healthcare workers. Before 2007, Zika was reported in places like tropical Africa, Southeast Asia, and the Pacific Islands in small numbers. Currently, though, those aren't the places that I've been hearing about in the headlines. So can you tell me where are the areas right now that I should be worried about Zika virus? Sure. So since 2015, there have been 70 countries and territories that have reported evidence of Zika transmission. So there are Zika outbreaks occurring in multiple countries throughout the Americas. So that includes Mexico, Central America, South America, the Pacific Islands. Um, such as American Samoa and Fiji, as well as some more isolated areas of Cape Verde and Africa, and then Singapore, which actually has a growing um, epidemic of Zika right now. Um, So the CDC has an updated list of all of the specific countries, so if you are planning travel to those areas, it's good to cross-check that reference list to make sure that where you're going, whether or not Zika is identified. But certainly what we've been hearing about in the news here is that there have been 43 locally acquired cases of Zika in the Miami-Dade County area. So specifically two areas of Wynwood and Miami Beach. Okay, great, thank you for, Mm -hmm. it's always a good idea, like you said, as this is kind of a current event to keep checking the most up-to-date maps. 
Symptoms of Zika include fever, rash, joint pain, and conjunctivitis, and sometimes headaches or myalgias. These symptoms are so common um, in everything I see in my clinic, things like right. strep and adenovirus, but also those in travelers like dengue and, and chikungunya. So how do we remain judicious in whom we're testing, but also make sure we're adequately identifying potential cases? Right, no, it's a great question. I mean, I think really the most important way to be judicious in testing is to take a relevant travel history. Mm -hmm. And I think this has become more and more important over the years, particularly in the wake of the Ebola epidemic, MERS, um, coronavirus in the Arabian Peninsula, is the importance of a travel history is, is really critical. So if you suspect Zika, um, it would be in those who've had relevant travel history. So by taking a travel history, if there's been no relevant travel in the prior two weeks and no history of sexual contact with someone who's traveled um, recently to a Zika endemic area, then there's really no current risk of Zika infection. So really the travel history piece is critical to determining whether there's been an actual exposure to, to Zika. Um, distinguishing Zika, though, from other vector-borne infections, uh, particularly dengue and chikungunya, like you mentioned, mm -hmm. can be challenging clinically. Um, they're transmitted by the same mosquito. They often have the same geographic distribution where the mosquitoes reside, um, and they have overlapping clinical features. So mm -hmm. if you are evaluating a patient who's had recent travel to an area where those diseases are um, circulating, it's uh, most prudent to test for all of them. Um, there are certain clinical clues that may be relevant. So um, in regard to distinguishing Zika, dengue, and chikungunya, mm -hmm. Zika more uh, commonly has conjunctivitis, okay. whereas the other two do not. And uh, rash is a little bit more common in Zika. But otherwise, they have very, very similar features. Mm -hmm. um, I think the other thing, though, to bear in mind, if you are evaluating a return traveler, um, there are other travel-related diseases, particularly malaria, typhoid, um, yellow fever, depending upon where they're traveling, that should be considered. So depending upon where the patient traveled and their clinical presentation, you may want to consider those other diseases as well. Great. It's good to think about, too. So once we've identified a potential case and we're planning to do testing, mm -hmm. uh, for us working at CHOP, how do we do this testing? Can we do it in our primary care clinics? Do we have to send them over to Maine? And right. what is this, what's the turnaround time? Yeah, so right now um, it, it would be um, best to send them to Maine. And the reason why is that we're recommending paired testing with both RT-PCR and serology. Mm -hmm. So both are available and there are some outpatient tests that have become available through Quest for RT-PCR specifically. But the only lab that's performing serology is the state lab, and we do recommend pair testing because you can have a false negative with RT-PCR. Mm. So right now, CHOP Maine is able to send out those specimens. They do require approval by the Department of Health to be sent, and mm. so it does require filling out um, forms that have the relevant epidemiology and clinical features uh, before they're sent, but that's really the, the best way to confirm um, a diagnosis is through both of those testing methods. Great. And then how long until patients typically get a result while they're waiting for this big news? Right. I'll say uh, historically, at least from our experience lately, is it's taking a few weeks to get the results back. Wow. Okay. So should people be kept in isolation if we have a high suspicion that they have Zika until we get those results? Right. I, I think in general, if you've returned from a Zika endemic area, um, the, the advice is to avoid mosquito bites in that week after return, mm -hmm. knowing that um, you can remain viremic for about a, a week after mm -hmm. um, you develop um, disease. 
I think that's good advice in general because as we know, Zika infection most commonly is asymptomatic. So most people returning from those areas will never have any evidence, even if they were exposed, that they had developed any kind of um, infection. And so um, I think it's a good rule of thumb just to avoid mosquito exposures when you return. Um, in general, most care is supportive for most people, and so there would really be no other intervention except awaiting the, the diagnostic results. Great. So let's shift a little bit to congenital Zika. And currently, there's more than 1,000 pregnant women with laboratory evidence of possible Zika virus infection in the United States and U.S. territories. When are the infants born to these mothers tested for Zika virus, and is this a clinical or laboratory diagnosis? Yeah, that we're that's making? a great question. I anticipate this being one that we're going to be fielding more, more frequently. Mm -hmm. So, really, it's both a laboratory and a cl clinical evaluation that's recommended. And in terms of the laboratory evaluation, it's recommended that uh, testing be performed within two days of birth. And mm -hmm. that is really to help distinguish congenital infection from perinatally or postnatally acquired. Mm -hmm. And so the laboratory evaluation um, involves PCR testing of both the urine and the serum, as well as IgM of the serum. And um, testing is recommended for infants born to mothers with laboratory evidence of Zika infection, as well as infants who have findings suggestive of congenital Zika syndrome um, and a maternal epidemiologic link suggesting possible transmission, even if the mother's testing was negative. So in those two scenarios, the, the, the testing is recommended. Um, if it cannot be performed before, before hospital discharge, the recommendation is just to presume congenital infection until, until you get some additional testing confirmed. Um, so that's a laboratory piece. The clinical evaluation is pretty extensive, um, mm -hmm. particularly initially, and does involve a comprehensive physical exam, um, assessment of growth parameters such as the head circumference, mm -hmm. um, as well as some consultations up front. So um, in general, the initial evaluation, particularly of a child who has um, abnormalities suggestive of congenital Zika is to include neurology for appropriate neuroimaging, um, consider an infectious disease specialist, particularly mm -hmm. to help round out the differential diagnosis, um, ophthalmology up front um, to evaluate for possible cortical mm -hmm. visual impairment, and then uh, clinical genetics um, to evaluate for potential other causes of microcephaly as well as endocrinology. Um, to evaluate for pituitary dysfunction. So there really is an extensive evaluation up front even before discharge. Mm -hmm. I also saw that the CDC was recommending hearing screening with an ABR. Um, yes. So that's another thing that Definitely. from primary care we mm -hmm. can refer families to do. Absolutely. With all of these subspecialists that need to be involved from the start in, in suspected and in confirmed Zika cases, is there anyone at CHOP in particular who has um, expertise or an interest in this that we should be referring them to within these departments? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not aware of anyone specific within the, the departments. I think the, um, the primary recommendation from the CDC is to establish a medical home, and I think CHOP Primary Care would be a great place to serve as medical home for these complex children. Um, and then the primary uh, care uh, pediatrician can help coordinate um, the, the consultant services you know, for the child, which I think even the outpatient side would likely involve neurology, ophthalmology, as well as a developmental specialist mm -hmm. um, as needed. Great. 
Um, shifting a little bit from the congenital cases to just childhood in, in general, I've had some families who are worried mm -hmm. about traveling to areas with Zika virus, right. and there's, they're concerned about whether or not there's a risk that Zika infection in childhood could then cause developmental delays, impaired growth, or other sequelae that you see in the congenital Zika cases. Is there any reason to believe that that would be true? Right. I think it's a great question. Certainly, as as we learn more about Zika, it seems that you know there's new new data emerging all the time. Right now, though, we have uh, no evidence to suggest that Zika causes any long-term sequelae in, in um, children who acquire it after birth. Um, although we have limited information on the long-term outcomes, but currently, based on the information we have, the guidance is uh, just to treat with supportive care and routine pediatric care in general for those children. Great. How worried do we need to be about the mosquitoes that carry Zika spreading up to Philadelphia? I think a lot of people are sure. worried as we heard that it came to Miami that this right. is going to be a progression that marches up the coast. So how, how realistic is that fear? Right. No, and I, I think it's certainly, a, you know, again, we're going to continue to feel these questions um, as we identify cases of Zika in the continental U.S. So the CDC does have maps with estimated ranges of the Aedes species uh, mosquitoes. And so again, Zika is transmitted by the Aedes aegypti and the Aedes albopticus mosquitoes. Mm -hmm. And these aren't generally the, the prominent, prominent mosquitoes in our area, but mm -hmm. theoretically they do have a geographic Graphic distribution that could extend up, up to the Northeast, including uh, Pennsylvania. I think it's important to note, though, that even though these maps show potential where the geographic spread could be, it does not represent risk um, of spread of disease. So mm -hmm. those maps don't indicate the density of mosquitoes that are present or the exact location where they are. So they're theoretical mm -hmm. and really don't correlate directly with risk of spread of Zika infection. Um, I think there is opportunity to look at what we know about dengue and chikungunya in the United States. So again, those are two diseases that are spread by the same mosquito. Mm -hmm. And what we have seen from recent outbreaks um, with those diseases in the United States is that the outbreaks have been relatively small and limited to, to very local areas. And so in the areas where we have had those outbreaks in the U.S. have been U.S. territories like Puerto Rico the U.S. Virgin Islands and Guam, and then in the continental US, uh, United States, they've been very local outbreaks in parts of Hawaii, Florida, and Texas. So I think if there's anything to learn from that, we may be able to apply, apply that you know, similar experience to, to Zika. Mm, that's really interesting. Thank you. As with most things, prevention is key. So how can we recommend to families who are worried about the transmission of Zika, if they are going to a place where they feel that there might be some risk, that they protect their children from mosquito bites? Right, so I think, you know, certainly in, in terms of travel, the, the recommendation right now is for pregnant, pregnant women are advised not to travel with, to any area where right. um, Zika is active. And so I think that's important repeating. Many of our patients, uh, mothers are, are pregnant or, or expecting. Right. Um, but if you are traveling or residing in an area with active Zika, um, the primary way to protect yourself is to protect yourself from mosquitoes. Um, so by wearing long sleeve shirts or long pants, um, staying in places with air conditioning, um, using windows and door screens. So if you are um, residing in an area with active Zika transmission to really mosquito-proof your home, make sure mm -hmm. that there's not standing water um, around. Mm -hmm. And then if you are outside, in addition to covering up, to use EPA-approved insect repellents um, that include active ingredients such as DEET. Mm -hmm. I think the one thing to bear in mind um, for children is that um, those insect repellents are not recommended for infants less than two months, mm -hmm. but are safe to use if used as directed, even in pregnant women and, and children of other ages. 
ages. Um, one uh, tip, though, if you are applying uh, insert repellent to children is to not spray it directly on their face or mucous mm -hmm. membranes areas, but one uh, tip is to spray it on your hands, the adult's hands, and then the adult can spread it on the child's face after that. Great. But certainly taking those steps to avoid mosquito bites is really the primary way to prevent Zika. Great. Um, two things with that. One is you mentioned pregnant women shouldn't travel. I think also mm -hmm. maybe women who are planning to become pregnant just because like you, we've talked Correct. about sexually you can acquire it also from your partner, yes. and, and I believe it lasts in semen a little bit longer. It correct? does, and there's recent evidence to suggest that it, it can even persist in semen upwards of six months at right. times. So, right, so if you're planning to become pregnant in the near future, the, the guidance mm -hmm. is to avoid travel. And with the DEET and the um, insect repellent, I have mm -hmm. a lot of families who are worried about exposure to DEET. Sure. Is there a, a percent DEET that you recommend for it to be? both protective but not harmful to kids? Mm -hmm. Not specifically. I think that the real the real thing to bear in mind is, it, is that they're safe and effective if used as directed, and mm -hmm. so used in the quantities that are recommended um, do not pose a risk of, of harm. Okay. Um, the other thing to remember is just to continue to reapply them every couple of hours as well because mm -hmm. they do wear off. But if they're used as directed, um, they're safe and, and both safe and effective to use in children. Great. That leads right into my next question, which is, as a means to control the spread of Zika, the aerial spraying of insecticides has started in endemic areas, including now Miami. I remember this happening when I was a child living near the Pine Barrens sure. and planes would fly overhead with insecticides. Mm -hmm. um, do we need to worry about any adverse health effects from the increased exposure to insecticides that may result um, after this uh, Zika virus outbreak? Right, that's a good question. I think particularly as you said, as the aerial spraying continues, um, I think you know many patients and families may be asking about this. I think the important thing to note, like as you just did, Katie, is that aerial spraying has been happening for years right. um, and it has, again, been proven safe and, and not to pose a health risk. Um, when you consider the amount of insecticide that's sprayed, it's a really small amount. It's actually an ounce or two tablespoons per acre wow. of insecticide. So it's a very small amount that's being sprayed. Um, so this small amount does not pose a health risk um, to people or to pets. Um, and again, it's being sprayed by people who are trained and certified to be using um, the, the insecticide. Um, it also does not cause asthma attacks. Um, the only potential irritation um, that it may cause, particularly spraying of a larvicide, can cause eye irritation if you're looking up at the sky as the, as the spraying is occurring. But outside of that, there's no health risk, no long-term health risk that, that these um, aerial spraying events pose. Great. So maybe just don't look up or go don't inside for a minute. Right. If you want to go inside, certainly you can, but it's not necessary. Great. So what we know about Zika, as we've been mentioning, and our clinical management guidelines seem to be continually evolving. It seems that every time I log onto my computer or open a journal, I'm seeing new information. Mm -hmm. So the evidence we discussed today is up to date as of the most recent data, mostly from August of 2016. So clinicians should continue to read the most recent guidelines whenever they're treating their patients. Where do you advise clinicians to get the most recent facts about Zika when they're making their clinical decisions? Right, that's a great question, and I think I've certainly been seeing you know, new events, news feeds uh, pop up on mine as well. Mm -hmm. So I think the CDC website is, is really a great place to go. They continue to um, include updated information, particularly for healthcare providers. Um, they release updated MMWRs regularly. Mm -hmm. So I think the CDC website is a great place to go. The WHO website also has good resources. So I think between those two locations, uh, you'll be able to stay up to date on the latest information. 
Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Sammons, well, for joining you. us and, and providing some clarity to a complicated public health concern yeah. uh, that I think our providers hopefully won't see too much of, but right. always to keep in mind is important. Right. So. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.